are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, November 10th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. Coercing the Clouds by Will Matsuka. Remembering Andy Clark of Moxie Bread Company by Caitlin Rocket. A Long Way Up by Chad Robert Peterson. Death is for the Birds by Bart Shaneman. Feel the Feeling by Jesse J. Gray. That's a Wrap by Michael J. Casey. The Shake Shack of Costa Rican Chicken by Colin Wren. Sipping and Spinning by Nick Hutchinson. Partaking in Public by Will Brenza. Coercing the Clouds. As drought worsens and snowpack dwindles, cloud seeding expands east of the Continental Divide for the first time in Colorado. By Will Matsuka. Colorado is turning to cloud seeding to beef up snowpack and meet growing water needs, including a new pilot project here in Boulder County. The project, spearheaded by the St. Vrain and Left Hand Water Conservancy District, will launch this winter west of Longmont along the St. Vrain Creek, pending state approval of a permit. Cloud seeding sprays tiny crystals of silver iodide into a storm cloud, increasing the cloud's ability to produce precipitation by introducing more particles that provide a base for snowflakes to form. Weather modification isn't like a silver bullet that's going to solve everything, says Andrew Rickert, a weather modification program manager at the Colorado Water Conservation Board, CWCB. But we strongly believe it's one of the tools in a toolbox that we can use to help our state. The state's weather modification program began operation in 1972, when Vail Resorts received the first cloud seeding permit. Each permitted program since has been west of the Continental Divide. If approved, the permit for the Boulder County Cloud Seeding Project will be the first conducted east of the Continental Divide in the state. The Water District pursued the permit to address community concerns over water supply. We really felt like the timing, the cost, and the opportunities were really well aligned, says Sean Cronin, Executive Director at the District. We decided that it would be a good time to demonstrate some leadership and be a pilot for weather modification on this side of the hill. Of the eight cloud seeding projects in Colorado, seven use ground-based generators to float silver iodide into clouds, while one project uses planes to seed clouds aerially. The Boulder County project's two generators will be ground-based. 
The expansion of these programs into the Front Range comes on the 100-year anniversary of the November 1922 Colorado River Compact signing, a defining moment in Colorado River management. The agreement allocated 7.5 million acre-feet of the river to both of the newly established Upper Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Wyoming, and Lower California, Arizona, Nevada basins. Today, scientists recommend water managers plan for the river to provide just 9 million acre-feet annually, half the assumed 18 million acre-feet that the Colorado Compact allocated. Mitigating the spiraling reduction of flow in the Colorado River is one reason cloud seeding programs exist. Rickert says cloud seeding can result in 8 to 12 percent of snow water equivalent, a measurement that shows exactly how much water is actually in the snowpack. So if a storm is going to come through and drop 10 inches and we seed that storm, we can get an extra inch of precipitation out of the storm, he says. But those numbers are not a given. They depend on the amount of seedable storms that pass over a seeding generator, which can vary. Cloud seeding generators need a few specific characteristics for optimal success, including storms between 5 and 23 degrees Fahrenheit and wind above 5 knots, depending on how far the generator is from the target area. Stations also rely on directional wind getting pushed up the side of a mountain, known as orographic lift, to thrust the silver iodide into the cloud base. Rickert says the most important factor is already in the clouds. The main thing you need in a storm is supercooled liquid water, he says, so the ice crystal mimicking silver iodide has something to bind with. Silver iodide can also produce snowflakes at warmer temperatures, meaning more portions of storm clouds can produce snow. Rickert guesses CWCB will see somewhere between 24 and 35 suitable storms throughout the season, which lasts from November 1st to April 15th. Once CWCB spots a suitable storm coming toward a generator, a propane flame ignites and vaporizes silver iodide solution, sending it up into the clouds. We are just kind of nudging that cloud to actually make some of that precipitation fall out as snowpack, Rickert says. The St. Vrain and Left Hand Water Conservancy District's pilot program will have two remote generators located at the base of the foothills to target upslope conditions from storms from the east. The remote generators will be controlled by North American Weather Consultants, a weather forecast service in Salt Lake City. Scott Griebling, water resource engineer at the Water District, says the program costs roughly $140,000. The CWCB is funding equipment costs, about $90,000, and the district is covering operational costs, about $50,000. The district's project started with public support. In 2020, the district asked voters to support a tax increase to implement the plan. Cronin says voters approved at nearly 70%. There's agreement that more water can do good for the valley, he says. Despite widespread support, 
Some community members were concerned if cloud seeding in their area would take water from other places downwind. Rickert says the robbing Peter to pay Paul argument is one of the most common concerns he hears across the state, but it's a misconception. There have been so many studies conducted that have shown that not only is that false, but if anything, cloud seeding can increase precipitation downwind, he says. Rickert also says the technique doesn't have adverse environmental consequences. Silver iodide is found naturally in the environment and is not known to be harmful to humans or wildlife. The district will use its permit as a test phase to see if it is worth additional investments. We're just excited about this possibility and really looking forward to getting a season's worth of operations completed so we can evaluate how to move forward, says Griebling. Sources interviewed for this story are confident the project permit will be approved in the coming weeks. Once the district has the permit from the state, it plans on installing generators by the end of November. Once the equipment is installed, says Cronin, we begin the snow dance and root for the storms we can successfully seed. Remembering Andy Clark of Moxie Bread Company by Caitlin Rocket I dream about bread, Andy Clark, owner of Moxie Bread Company, told Boulder Weekly food editor John Lendorf in 2016, when the bakery was just a year old. Clark's dreams grew as the bakery expanded from its original Louisville location into North Boulder and then Lyons. His European-style treats netted him two James Beard Award nominations and a spot on foodandwine.com's list of the best bread in Colorado. But this week, friends, family, and the culinary community mourn Clark's death on November 8th. He was 46. He was always smiling, always bringing people together, always, says Lendorf, who bonded with Clark as a fellow bakery enthusiast and lover of bluegrass music. From the very start, he was somebody who was intent on doing it the right way. Real serious sourdough. And that grew to include sourcing grain from local farmers, and then expanded to resurrecting heirloom grain varieties. He knew every farmer in town. Moxie was a founding member of the Colorado Grain Chain, a collection of businesses and organizations that promote, produce, and support the use of heritage, ancient, and locally adapted grain products. In a blog on Moxie's webpage, Clark spoke with reverence about traditional methods of farming and its ability to transform our planet, bodies, and minds. He found like-minded community at the Colorado Grain School, writing, The friendships that I have made there over the years have forged some of the strongest bonds I've made in recent time with folks from near and far who have common interest in healing the planet, nurturing the soil, baking for biodiversity and flavor and nutrition, and a whole lot more. Elizabeth Ritersky, who lives next to Clark, his wife, and three children in Louisville, says community is the best word to describe Clark. He was just such a leader in the Louisville community, and through COVID, Ritersky says. He was feeding teachers through the pandemic. He just does everything. From bake sales for racial justice to hosting relief events for families affected by the Marshall Fire and volunteering at clothing giveaways for those in need, 
Clark really seemed to do everything, to know everyone. Alex Osborne, a local adventurer and entrepreneur, often hung with Clark at Moxie's infamous Friday night pizza party jam sessions, where musicians, including Clark on guitar, would play folk and bluegrass into the wee hours of the night. On any given day, when I'd visit Moxie, I'd be introduced to a chocolate maker, a musician, a farmer, Osborne wrote in an email. Moxie was a place for makers, doers, and, most importantly, community. When Moxie would come up in a conversation with potential landlords, out on a date, or with new friends, the reaction was always the same. You know Andy? It was a stamp of approval that opened doors and made settling into Boulder a pleasure. Clark felt the love radiate back from the community expressing his appreciation in his very first Moxie blog post from January 1st, 2021. Our customers have shown up once again to support us like a barn raising. I can feel every hand that holds these walls of Moxie, pushing them up and raising us up. I am deeply and profoundly appreciative. We will continue to serve up good food with great customer service for the community through high seas and choppy waters until we glide out from under this storm. You can help support Andy's family by donating to a GoFundMe. GoFundMe.com slash F slash B6EKU6 dash Andy's dash family, all in lowercase. A long way up. After becoming the first woman to free climb the Dunn West Bay Direct, Madeline Sorkin is focused on having more fun and taking time to reflect. By Chad Peterson. The air is thin at the 13,000 foot base of the Dunn West Bay Direct route, a 5.14B grade climb on Long's Peak, Colorado's northernmost 14,000 foot peak. The weather moves at a sprint. Former Boulder and current Paonia resident Madeline Sorkin starts the day early on August 10th, 2022, cruising up the heinous hike to Chasm Lake to continue her project on the crown jewel of Colorado alpine climbing. Each summer, the east face of Long's Peak, referred to as the Diamond, invites eager climbers from around the country to test themselves on the sheer vertical face which dominates the Estes Park skyline. This past summer, Sorkin became the fifth person and first woman to free climb the Dunn West Bay Direct. It's only the most recent achievement in Sorkin's storied climbing career, full of first or early free ascents on remote rock walls, which she'll discuss at the Chautauqua Explorer series on November 15th. I don't just climb and travel in my van all the time anymore. It's just not as fulfilling, she explains. I think, as I've gotten older, choosing a bigger goal that I could really sink my teeth into has gotten more appealing. Her success on Long's Peak is especially notable due to the many factors that make the Dunn West Bay unique. Its four pitches are a rope stretching 80 meters each, and its position at 13,000 feet atop the diamond makes it the most challenging high-altitude free climb in the world. The diamond has been a proving ground for climbers like Sorkin since 1960, 
from groundbreaking first ascents from climbers Leighton Core and Billy West Bay to modern-day free climbers such as Tommy Caldwell. The diamond invites those who are eager for the challenge. Sorkin is no stranger to the challenges presented by Rocky Mountain National Park, as she worked in the park at Colorado Mountain School as a climbing guide, taking clients to various areas, including the Petit Grappon and the Cables Route on Long's Peak. In 2021, Sorkin trudged up to the diamond three times to work on the historically difficult line. Sorkin decided that the Dunn-West Bay line would be a realistic goal for 2022. She wanted to have a love affair with the project, as she explains it, and used the preceding year as preparation. Sorkin's lofty goals have led to a string of successes across the Western Rockies on some of the most formidable terrain around. Over the past year, Sorkin enjoyed a spell of exceptional form, having repeated the free hallucinogen wall in a day, graded 5.13 in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, while also free climbing Yellow Wolf, a 1,000-foot 5.13D in northwest Wyoming. Over the summer of 2016, Sorkin completed the Honeymoon is Over, a 5.13C, also on the diamond, making her the fifth individual and first woman to free-climb the line Tommy Caldwell first free-climbed in 2001. The winter before repeating the free hallucinogen wall, Sorkin spent time replacing anchor bolts on the historic line. Despite consistent difficulties with weather, Sorkin says her process going into the Dunn West Bay was significantly more enjoyable than when she freed the honeymoon is over in 2016. I felt like I could have done better in terms of being healthy and really appreciating the time up there on the honeymoon is over, versus being too anxious and hyper-focused on doing the route. In a 2015 interview on the EnormaCast podcast with Chris Kalous, Sorkin said she wanted to move toward finding more enjoyment in climbing. At some point, I want to be the climber having the most fun out there, and it's still something I grasp for, she explained to Kalous. Over the past six years, Sorkin has noticed a change in her mentality and has started to take more enjoyment from the process of projecting enormous objectives. If I look comparatively, I don't think I'm the climber having the most fun out there, she admits. I think I can take myself way too seriously. But I do think fun is way more available to me than it used to be. While Sorkin has found an avenue for more fun in climbing, she still understands the weight that can be carried in a day-to-day -day adventure. In 2018, with the loss of several high-profile figures in the climbing community, Sorkin and the American Alpine Club teamed up to form the Climbers Grief Fund to help connect individuals to mental health professionals and push forward conversations around grief and trauma in climbing, alpinism, and ski mountaineering. This was motivated by a metamorphosis I was going through as a climber and not knowing what to do with the weight of a lot of loss in my community, she explains. I've seen a lot of other climbers who had been carrying around weight and loss, and there not being nearly enough resources or shared space for grief. Sorkin now lives in Paonia with her wife, filmmaker Hannah Taylor.
As far as her next goal in climbing, Sorkin talks with reservation about potential objectives in areas such as Yosemite or Red Rocks, Nevada. But two and a half months after Dunn West Bay, she's focusing on life outside of climbing. There are these times in my life where I think it's important to kind of sit back and be a little more reflective on our nothingness having a very fulfilling effect. Death is for the Birds Boulder cartoonist Will Betke Brunswick tells a devastating, heartfelt tale of grief with penguins in a new graphic memoir by Bart Shaneman. When people talk about losing a loved one, some like to say the grief doesn't get smaller over time, you just grow bigger around it. For cartoonist Will Betke Brunswick, who lost their mother to cancer 13 years ago, that sentiment doesn't quite ring true. It's never happened for me, the boulder-based artist says. I still feel like my grief is big and I'm small. Betke Brunswick transformed that big grief into a moving and poignant graphic memoir titled A Pros and Cons List for Strong Feelings, due to be published by Tin House on November 15th. The story follows the main character, a penguin named Duger, the author's real-life nickname, as they grapple with their mother's terminal cancer diagnosis and the last ten months of her life. In scene after scene, Duger and their mom, a fellow penguin called Moomin, share moments both hilarious and heartbreaking. The story is told with a delicate touch that's as much a tribute to a child's love for their mother as a primer on how families cope with tragedy. For instance, take this devastating line of dialogue from Duger. She doesn't want to talk about death, and my dad thinks talking about it will help us prepare and Marcy thinks my mom is taking care of all of us as she's dying. Bet Kate Brunswick, who received their Masters of Fine Arts from California College of Arts, says the decision to explore such painful themes through cartoonish bird characters arose out of a need to separate themselves from the subject material. It helped them across those difficult emotions in a creative, cathartic way. It was just too emotionally difficult to draw my mom dead, Bet K. Brunswick says. I was like, I can draw a horizontal penguin. Once I had her drawn as a penguin, I got attached to all of us as penguin characters. Healing through cartooning. But death isn't the only big subject broached by this feathered family. Duger also comes out as gender queer in the book. They explain to their dad by reading from Wikipedia, but this response falls short of validations. I had patients who regretted their sex change operations, Duger's father responds. Duger reacts indignantly. Were you even listening? Bet K. Brunswick can laugh about that exchange now, but his father's response was painful at the time. That was not okay to say, they explain. That is not an appropriate response when coming out as genderqueer. This intimate exploration of gender identity is another area where drawing the characters as birds helped free up Betke Brunswick creatively. Drawing myself as a penguin, people don't see a penguin and immediately think boy or girl, they say. 
And you don't have to spend time and energy figuring that out. I can just exist as a character. In order to tap into this self-styled character, Betke Brunswick, who works at the Boulder Public Library as a library coordinator, didn't draw from diary entries of the time depicted in the book. They didn't need to write down what happened as it happened. The pain of loss stayed fresh in their mind over the years. I wasn't journaling, they say. This was all from memory. It's very visceral. In the end, creating this book has been an important step for the author in processing their grief, even if the sense of loss has not diminished in any real way. It has been healing in the sense of both getting to create something out of my emotions and that I got to spend time with her because it was 13 years ago, they say. It felt good to sink into the two of us being in the same room, the two of us having a conversation again. That is something that I missed incredibly. It's not something I get to do anymore. On the shelf, Will Betke Brunswick, a pros and cons list for strong feelings. Reading and signing, 6.30pm Tuesday, November 15th, Boulder Bookstore, 1107 Pearl Street. Tickets $5, boulderbookstore.net. Further reading. Five graphic memoirs that inspired Will Betke Brunswick during the writing of a pros and cons list for strong feelings. From the Truth with Truth, a graphic memoir by Lawrence Lindell. Lindell explores so many types of comic forms in their memoir, mixing panels, full-page illustrations, silent pages, and overlapping words and images. He also includes photos and other documents. I am always inspired to experiment when I read their work. 100 Demons by Linda Berry Linda Berry is one of my absolute favorite cartoonists. I love her monsters and demons, her big capital letters, and how absolutely hilarious her comics are. Everything is Beautiful and I'm Not Afraid by Yao Xiao This book made me feel so many feelings. I was inspired by the intense feelings and quiet narration. The Loneliness of a Long-Distance Cartoonist by Adrian Tamin I love holding this book in my hands. It is so beautiful and deliberate. I like that it is a graphic memoir about being a cartoonist, not about some other life event. Super Late Bloomer My Early Days in Transition by Julia Kay I read this entire book in the Boulder Library while standing still in the middle of the graphic novel section. I usually favor four-panel comics, but this book made me appreciate the three-panel format. Feel the Feeling Denver emo revivalists, A Place for Owls, Turn Up the Sincerity on WLP by Jesse J. Gray the term emo has lived many lives since its origins in the evolving DC hardcore scene of the late 1980s. Three decades later, the once maligned moniker, more a general vibe than a discrete set of musical practices, is used to describe a broad swath of heart-on-the-sleeve artists, from goth-adjacent arena rockers like My Chemical Romance to alt-radio hitmakers Jimmy Eat World, and the late Long Island mumble rapper Lil Peep. 
Denver Quintet, A Place for Owls, pulls their sound from a strain of emo born in the American Midwest, near the turn of the century. Think twinkling guitars with anthemic crescendos marked by a wistful sense of ennui and a measured dose of DIY punk basement show energy. This so-called second wave of the misunderstood genre has enjoyed something of a comeback over the last decade, and the front range outfit, led by vocalist and guitarist Ben Soy, is among the latest to dive back into the pool. There's a lot of gatekeeping in terms of what is emo and what isn't, but any music that asks deep questions and makes you feel big feelings, that's emo to me, Soy says. We are less concerned about the waves and who we're trying to sound like. It feels a little bit more natural to just kind of create a synthesis within the broad category of guitar music. Those big feelings run all over the band's self-titled A Place for Owls LP, released August 30th via Broom of Destruction Records. The polite and poignant 11-song offering finds Sui and his bandmates turning over questions of belonging, connection, and mortality with an open-hearted sincerity that he says has opened up with age. I'm now in my mid-thirties. It's like, well, I'm practically 40. That means I'm practically 50. That means I'm practically dead, Sui says. I just want to be as earnest and pure as I was when I was 17 years old. This youthful earnestness extends beyond the uncertain questions posed by lead single, Do I Feel at Home Here? The vulnerable slow burn of deliberate practice or the life-affirming gang vocals of the up-tempo emo masterclass dissolver. It's baked into the band's internal relationships, too. The running joke is that band practice tends to be about an hour or two of work, and then another two or three hours of group therapy, says drummer Jesse Cowan. It really is a testament to the depth of the friendships that exist within our band. That makes songwriting easier, and it makes the shows more fun. The band is open about their own struggles with mental health, and that openness feeds into the music and cathartic live experiences. For keyboardist, guitarist, and vocalist Nick Weber, it all adds up to a choice to cut a more difficult but rewarding path through the tougher times in life, with the hope that the decision will be contagious. In those darker moments, cynicism is easy. It doesn't actually take work to look at things and say, well, everything sucks, Weber says. What's a lot harder is actually fighting back and choosing gratitude and trying to cling to the things that are actually life-giving, and encourage people and give them a sense of community. To that end, Soy and his emo group therapy bandmates hope A Place for Owls can carve a place for connection. We're trying to show people that this is a real thing you're feeling. We're feeling it too, he says. So let's feel it together, and maybe it won't suck quite so bad. On the Bill a Place for Owls with Troubled Minds, Father Help Me, and Strung Short, 7 p.m., Saturday, November 12th, D3 Arts, 3612 Morrison Road, Denver. Bonus, Nothing Sounds Good. Each week, A Place for Owls puts together an emo-ish playlist of smaller bands called APFO Weekly. 
Here are five highlights from the latest offering by vocalist and guitarist Ben Sui. Hyacinth by Kara Kara. Philadelphia's Kara Kara put our favorite record of 2022. They mix emo, post-rock, and 90s radio rock to make some of the most compelling and resonant music I've ever heard. 16 by Flight Mode. Oslo, Norway's Flight Mode writes melodic and lyric-forward songs that remind me a lot of beloved bands like The Weaker Thans or Early Death Cab for Cutie. New Queen by Expert Timing. New Queen by Orlando's Expert Timing sounds a lot like Peak No Doubt or Sixpence None the Richer. Truly great guitar music. Nightly Garbage Run by Birthday Dad. Birthday Dad writes songs about loneliness, struggles with substance abuse, and being addicted to your phone. And sometimes he does it while making songs that sound fun. Shadowland by A Boy and His Kite. They say never meet your heroes, but Boulder County's own A Boy and His Kite, aka Dave Wilton, has proved himself to be one of the kindest and most brilliant musicians I've ever met. We're both stoked to see our favorite band, Sunny Day Real Estate, play Denver on December 4th. That's a wrap. Three Picks for the Final Weekend of the 45th Denver Film Festival by Michael J. Casey. The 45th Denver Film Festival concludes this weekend with a full slate of features and shorts, documentaries and narratives, and even a party or two. You can find the full lineup at denverfilm.org, but here are three offerings that ought to make your dance card. Gods of Mexico 2 p.m. Saturday, November 12th, Sci Film Center, H1. Free from narrative and dialogue, Gods of Mexico is a more sensory experience than story. It is a silent observation of Mexico's indigenous men and women, identified only by title cards notating the region. The documentary is divided into three sections. In the first, Two men dig a deep hole into the ground, and then methodically fill it with rocks. Then the rocks are destroyed under the watchful eye of an old-timer in aviator sunglasses and a straw hat. Why? The answer to that question intersects with another group of workers silently harvesting salt from nearby plots. From here, director Helmut Dos Santos breaks into a section of pure portraiture before picking up with a group of miners tunneling deep below the surface. At no point does Dos Santos ground the viewer or pause to explain his intentions. Instead, he leaves audiences with stunning cinematography and a wonderful exercise in imagination. Close. 6.45 p.m. Saturday, November 12th. Sci Film Center, H2. Leo, Eden Dambrin, and Remy, Gustave de Weil, are close. And since they're both 13 years old, they have no qualms when it comes to showing their affection for each other. But they won't be 13 forever, and as their emotions begin to close off, social pressure and playground bullying quickly shift them to a familiar emotional place. 
Writer-director Lucas Daunt used non-professional actors for Close and struck gold in Dambrine. His ability to express everything while withholding just enough matches Daunt and cinematographer Frank Vanden Eden's camera, which stays close but can't help but look away during tragic moments. It's a powerful movie that would feel utterly crushing if not for the happy ending. Maybe it'll feel contrived to you, but after this much sadness, contrivances might be all we got. Wildcat. 3.45pm, Sunday, November 13th, AMC, H2. That leads us nicely into Wildcat, a documentary about a young British soldier struggling with PTSD in the Amazon rainforest. He is Harry Turner, an Afghanistan vet who travels to South America to help his girlfriend, Samantha Zwicker, rescue and relocate ocelots from Amazonian deforestation. Directed by Trevor Backfrost and Melissa Lesh, Wildcat is a sweet movie with all the depth of a car decal. You know the one. It's in the shape of an animal's paw and asks, who rescued who? That might seem like a mean swipe at an otherwise genuine doc, but Wildcat raises as many questions about ethics in documentary production as it provides insight into Turner's ongoing struggles with depression and PTSD. But the film's heart is in the right place, and at the very least, has one of the cutest stars of the whole festival, Keanu, a baby ocelot with a beautiful pumpkin-colored coat and black ink splotches. On screen, the 45th Denver Film Festival, November 10 to 13th, multiple venues. The Shake Shack of Costa Rican Chicken Byron Gomez opens Pollo Tico in Avanti by Colin Wren. Chef Byron Gomez has cooked alongside a lot of big deal chefs. He cut his teeth in Daniel Boulud's Kitchens, a fine dining empire which currently spans New York, Boston, Miami, London, Singapore, and Dubai, to name a few. Though this was back when the French chef was mostly conquering the Big Apple, and Gomez was helping launch Café Boulud and heating up at the DBGB Kitchen and Bar. He also worked the line at Daniel Hum's famed 11 Madison Park in 2017, right as it was being recognized as the world's best restaurant by the world's 50 best. Most recently, Gomez ran the kitchen at 7908 in Aspen, where he served what was undoubtedly some of the most forward-thinking cuisine available at that altitude. So it stands to reason that it's kind of a big deal that the Top Chef Season 18 alum decided to debut his first truly independent project, Pollo Tico, at Avanti Boulder. I never thought my first restaurant was going to be fast casual, to be honest, says Gomez. But at the end of October, the chef opened Pollo Tico in the stall that formerly housed Quiero Arepas in the popular Pearl Street food hall. Pollo Tico, for me, is two things. The majority is as an educational establishment, Gomez says. The second is the chicken. Chicken is very friendly. Everyone knows chicken, he smiles. Ostensibly a rotisserie chicken joint, 
Pollo Tico is a tribute to the dishes that shaped Gomez's youth growing up in Costa Rica. We are serving things that people here might only know through a Mexican restaurant. It wasn't until Gomez was given the platform provided by Top Chef that he decided to tell the world and many of his previous employers that he had risen the ranks from one of the king's fry cooks all the way to the highest echelons of fine dining while undocumented. Initially furnishing fake papers, the chef was granted DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, status in 2014. Along with the trouble of having to frequently renew his status, he still can't leave the country. It's safe to say that the food at Poyotico is personal. The menu centers around half or quarter rotisserie chicken served with homemade sauces and sides. We do have the Michelin-style standards in the kitchen, says Gomez, noting that though the menu may appear simple, this is still the kind of cuisine befitting the celebrity chef's pedigree. There's the chicken patacon, which lays shredded chicken, sofrito, red cabbage, escabeche vegetables, and salsa de chile amarillo, atop twice-fried green plantains for a kind of open-faced sandwich. The house-made sauces are foundational and fundamental, with the creamy salsa verde, a tamarindo sauce, the sofrito de tomate, the habanero chincha de piña and hot sauce, and the chimichurri, all being sold in bottles. These are the kind of sauces no home kitchen is complete without. While Gomez designed much of the menu, the day-to-day -day operations are set to be left largely in the hands of executive chef Jorge Saldana. Saldana grew up in San Diego and moved to New York with the intent of working in some of the world's great kitchens. He and Gomez met while they were on the line at DBGB in 2012, and their culinary journey continued to intersect in the following decade. While still in New York, Saldana bounced around Belude's restaurant group, developing his skills at Belude Seuss, Bar Belude, and Daniel. In 2016, he moved to Denver to join the line at Half-Eaten Cookie Hospitality's now-shuttered Acorn, before a stint at Chef Jennifer Jasinski's fabulous Union Station Spanish tapas joint, Ultrea. He returned to New York to work at the one Michelin-starred classic French eatery Le Coucou before returning to Colorado in May 2020. He's since worked a variety of gigs with Gomez in Aspen and across the Front Range. There's a lot of talent between Gomez and Saldana. The duo also share more than a fair bit of kitchen chemistry, which is evident across the menu. It was stuff Byron grew up eating, but we came together to make it happen, says Saldana. While Poyotico is getting its sea legs, the two plan to introduce a ceviche program in December, with weekly specials primarily handled by Saldana. When Gomez presented Costa Rican dishes at this year's luncheon for the Aspen Food and Wine Classic, proudly sporting an I Am an Immigrant shirt, he wasn't sure where his culinary journey was going to take him next. He did know it was time for him to do his own thing. The chef now says this is just the beginning. Why can't we be the next Shake Shack for Costa Rican chicken, he says with a grin. On the plate, 
Pollo Tico, Avanti F and B, fourteen o one Pearl Street, Boulder, Boulder dot dot com. Sipping and spinning, music to drink by, by Nick Hutchinson. The wine must have done its job because I am relaxed and finally at ease. Yes, it's definitely the wine. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started singing out of the blue in a million years. Hilaria Alexander. When it comes time to relax over a drink, a little musical accompaniment often helps set the mood. Yet our favorite spins can eventually grow stale. Ditto our usual beverages. Yesterday's ale and well-worn tracks might call for a rethink, but finding the proper pairing of liquid and sound can present a dilemma, which is where a bit of research and technology help to keep things fresh. The website Drinkify is an online way to find options for your grog and groove time. The straightforward format tells you what to imbibe while listening to whatever artist you key in. If you enter the Grateful Dead, for example, the site generates a photo of the Dead's live 1981 double album release, Dead Set, along with a drink recipe that includes Sipsmith, an artisan brand of gin from England, and fresh lemon juice. Personally, I might opt for the San Francisco group's all-acoustic release, Reckoning, 1981, along with a good IPA or a bit of Jim Bean. But punch in Sam Bush, and a Jack Daniels and Coke is the computer-generated result. That one is spot on. For the banjo-driven music of Bella Fleck, the site suggests a refreshing blend of Jack and iced tea. I'll drink to that, too. The website appears to have a recurrent hankering for handcrafted gin from London, which also comes up, four ounces of it on the rocks, when entering music by the indie rock band The War on Drugs. The book Booze and Vinyl by brother and sister writing team Andre and Tanaya Darlington features a buzz-evoking and artistically inviting layout of cocktail, rock, and pop-related photos, along with some excellent ideas for what to pour in your glass. The book recommends planter's punch and sitting in lawn chairs while enjoying Bob Marley and the Wailers, a tequila sunrise to accompany the Rolling Stones, a dirty martini for anything by Iggy Pop, a gin and tonic for the sounds of the clash, a fishbowl which blends rum, vodka, and blue curacao, among other things, for Wilco, a pina colada for the Beach Boys, Yorsh, a Russian-inspired blend of vodka and beer, for Nirvana, a little absinthe for Amy Winehouse, a Manhattan for Sinatra, a velvet hamer, cognac, cream, and liqueur for Marvin Gaye, a shot of Jameson and a harp beer for the Pogues, and lots of other intriguing combinations for when unwinding with a cup in hand. Perhaps the easiest way to air a medley of pleasing ditties when floating your booze-born relaxation boat is to use a streaming platform such as Spotify or Pandora, it still exists, and simply let the algorithms carry you away to a beverage-enhanced happy place. I recently spent my Friday night mixing white Negronis, replaced Campari with Suze, a French aperitif with a delicately bitter gentian root flavor, to Spotify's French jazz cafe stream, 
followed by a digitally driven journey through the biggest hits of 1971. It was tough not to be pleasantly uplifted and amused by a frankified cover of Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking, C'est Bon Sans Fait Promache, by the chanteuse Emily Clark Barlow, as well as other similarly entertaining and French-infused jazz cuts, and then welcomely chilled by a string of bygone chart toppers from Bill Withers, Cat Stevens, Three Dog Night, Bread, Joan Bays, and The Temptations all while the Sues and Gin worked their magic. Be it classical, hip-hop, Irish folk, reggaeton, whatever your jam, it's all there for the streaming via smartphone and maybe a wireless speaker. Partaking in public. Why haven't social consumption lounges taken off a decade into legalization? By Will Brenza. Colorado has a lot of cannabis dispensaries. As of 2018, there were just over 14 dispensaries for every 100,000 residents, according to Verilife. There are over 250 in the Denver metro area alone. If anyone wants to know where they can legally buy weed, directing them is as simple as pointing down the block or across the street. If, however, someone wants to know where they can smoke weed legally, That's not so simple to answer. It's still illegal to publicly consume cannabis almost anywhere in Colorado. It's forbidden in public spaces or on national or state property like parks, monuments, and conservatories. It's prohibited in any venue that sells alcohol like bars or concert venues, as well as any venue that allows children like bowling alleys, arcades, or theme parks. So, where are people supposed to legally smoke their cannabis? At home, according to the state. Even though cannabis has been largely accepted as a legal substance in Colorado, even though it generates more tax revenue than any other industry here, and even though, in reality, people are out there smoking weed all over the place, doing so legally requires privacy. Obviously, there's still stigma stuck to this plant. But there's more to Colorado's lack of social consumption businesses than that, because cannabis consumption lounges are technically legal. In 2018, the state passed SB 211, the Marijuana Consumption Club License Bill, which created licenses for businesses that wanted to legally sell cannabis and allow consumption on site. In 2020, the legislature also passed HB 1230, the Cannabis Hospitality Bill, creating a legal pathway for cannabis hostels and bed and breakfasts. And some businesses, like the Joint Coffee Company in Denver, even allow for bring-your-own-cannabis, BYOC, consumption, which can also be done legally. The framework for social consumption businesses has been set up, so where are they? Why aren't cannabis consumption lounges as abundant as cannabis dispensaries? Chris Chiari, the owner of the Patterson Inn in Denver, says licensing fees and regulatory requirements are a huge barrier for entry for most entrepreneurs. Chiari has been working to open Colorado's first cannabis lounge and hotel at the Patterson for years now. As he openly admits, 
Just getting started requires a lot of resources and time, two things budding businesses don't often have. Applying for a cannabis consumption lounge license in Denver is a multi-step process that requires a zone use permit, a floor plan, and documented affirmation from the neighborhood you want to operate in that they actually want your business there. The permit costs $1,000 a year. The location has to be 1,000 feet away from any school, place of worship, or public playground, and cannot advertise within 500 feet of any of those establishments. There's also specific requirements for HVAC capabilities in a business that allows smoking indoors. Navigating all of that usually requires extensive legal help, which is expensive on its own. Add to that the cost of finding and acquiring the perfect location, the cost of applying for all these licenses and paying the permits, the cost of installing adequate HVAC, all on top of the cost of actually building your business, renovating marketing, and advertising. And even then, after you've jumped through all those hoops and signed all those checks, how lucrative is the business? How many customers will show up regularly to buy weed, hang out, and smoke around strangers? There's a reason why cigar bars sell alcohol. The draw of social consumption on its own isn't typically enough to cover the costs of operation. Which is why Chiari isn't just building a social consumption hotel at the Patterson Inn. The way he sees it, building a cannabis castle that's only focused on weed does no one any good. Instead, he's trying to establish the Patterson Inn as the first cannabis lounge, hotel, restaurant, and bar in the U.S. As a company, we have found a way to facilitate the coexistence and cohabitation of these conflicting licenses through sound structure and through the strict separation of where they occur as far as consumption of cannabis and sale of alcohol, he explains. Essentially, the businesses are separate with separate licenses operating on the same property. The alcohol is served by the adjacent 12 Spirits Tavern, and cannabis consumption will only be allowed in the Cannabis Lounge, which Chiari is currently in the process of building. The normalization and the stigmatization of cannabis is my passion and life's mission right now, Chiari says. I'm excited to be in this position, and I'm looking forward to getting across that finish line. It's been a legal puzzle to work out, but he's close, Chiari says. The licenses have all been acquired, the permits have all been paid for, and he owns the historic building at 420 11th Street in Denver. Now, he just has to finish renovations, meet a few more regulatory requirements with the city, and, he hopes, sometime this January, the Patterson Inn will be open for business. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.